Thank you, TJ. Thank you, Julia. That was beautiful. Good morning. I thought about wearing my, my mask. I've got a couple of them. And uh, I thought it would kind of project a, a, a real sobering sense of responsibility. I get that message off the news all the, e you know, every, every evening, no matter where the location, uh, people are talking through their masks. And uh, I understand that from when I go to the grocery store, but I thought that might be kind of a gag and I chickened out. So anyway, next week <clears throat> you'll definitely want to tune in because not only will it be Celebration Sunday and there's going to be a train of wonderful testimonies and I, I know that God will really speak to us through those testimonies and through the worship of that morning. But who knows, maybe I'll do kind of a buzz cut because I'm looking, I'm getting a little shaggy, so you just never know. These are these are wild and crazy times in terms of the things that we do to cope. So this morning, we're in the sixth segment of our series out of Philippians, As Citizens, and we're in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. I'd like to read it to us now. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news about you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me quite Literally, he has slaved together with me or worked with me like a slave, serving with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send you to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and your minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I want to uh, share three peeves and one observation. Uh, these peeves 
go back a ways, actually to my days in college. I uh, was in a literature course, and my professor had a peeve. I don't remember what triggered this conversation, but he got pretty annoyed. And what annoyed him was in his travels, whether it was the wonder of the open nature and the beauty of the surroundings, or even he referenced museums, he found tourists would view everything through the eye of a camera. It was almost as though they were seeing the world through the lens of their camera, thinking of the slideshow that they would create. And this annoyed him terribly because he felt that they were missing the ambiance, if you will, or the presence of the area that they were in, the sights that they were seeing. So that's peeve number one. Uh, when you travel, uh, you know, see what's going on with your, with your eye and your soul and, and don't view the whole thing through the eye of a camera. The second peeve was in a biology eight class and my professor, who himself in fact uh, had been a biologist for Yosemite, had been a biologist for Mineral King, and it was through slides of this area that I was first introduced to the mountains just to our east. But his peeve were, he, he, <laughs> what peeved him were hikers that would just pound the trail with their eyes on their feet, their heads down, constantly looking at their feet, more interested in just getting to the destination than realizing the wonder of the beauty of what was around them and possibly seeing the wildlife in that area. And the third peeve comes uh, from my own personal experience of cycling. I uh, have some guys that I regularly have cycled with over the last years. One in particular is a great joy that I like to, to cycle with him. But he has a tendency, well, he would admit, in fact, he's defended himself by saying, uh, I just have my eyes on my wheel, I keep my, my head down, and I'm just, you know, I'm grinding the road. Well, th this is kind of a peeve for me because in the past, I, without thinking and forgetting that he's just got his head down, his eyes on that front wheel as he rides the road, uh, I'd say, did you see that? No, he didn't see that. And I, we've, I've seen an eagle a buzzard, a fox, and I'd say, did you see that? No, I didn't, uh, I just had my head down. So travel, hiking, cycling, don't just have your head down. Don't just have a camera glued to your, to your sight. And the observation is this, in our present generation of phones and devices, and when we're once again gathered, but in gatherings, often you look around the room and half the crowd has their heads down because they're looking at their devices, looking at their smartphones. I've seen venues, sporting venues, where people in the crowd just have their eyes down while the, the sport's being played on the court or on the field. There's a theme to these examples. 
Stop and smell the roses. Lift your head and look around. It's, it's not just the destination, it's the journey. And there's a sense that sometimes we're just so driven, uh, we're, we're in kind of automatic pilot, that as a result, we miss things that are important. They just go unnoticed because we're unaware. I don't want you to miss the more important thing. In fact, Paul doesn't want us to miss the most important thing. Even here in the verses that we've just read where, where Paul talks about his travel plans, something that usually concludes his letters. Here, it draws our attention to something that's very important, something that just as what has gone before is driven by a central concern. And what is the most important thing? Well, we find it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. And verse 27, which is the, the source of our theme, where, where Paul speaks about living as citizens, conducting ourselves as citizens, citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God. But it is there in verse 27 that most translations begin with the word only, only. And that's a real emphatic attention getter. In fact, perhaps a better translation would be just one thing. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether present or absent, I hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind contending side by side for the faith of the gospel and in no way frightened by those who oppose you. The question, the question that keeps raising its hands like an eager student, maybe an annoying student, the question that keeps raising its hands is this, is the gospel worth it? And to answer that question, we have to set aside our cameras and smartphones, we have to lift our eyes off of our feet and off the road, and we have to focus on the most important thing. We have to see the most important thing, and that is our citizenship, our citizenship in Christ, our allegiance to Christ, that we are children of God. All of those things are before us when Paul says, live as citizens of heaven worthy of the gospel, all of the good things of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is the gospel worth our attention, worth our time, worth our talent, worth our treasure? I know what Paul's answer is. It's yes, an emphatic yes. And I know what our answer will be. Yes, 
an emphatic yes. But as citizens, as citizens who live worthy of the gospel, as citizens who say yes, there's one important thing that we have to do. We show that worth. We show that the gospel is worth it when we live our lives by faith. That's how we demonstrate the worth of the gospel. That's what gets our attention and holds our attention. That's why we're not caught unaware and we're, why we're alert to what's around us, what's going on in the world, and why we focus on Jesus Christ. We show its worth when we live by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, I don't usually stray from whatever passage we're looking at, but it gives us such a vital definition of faith. In fact, it reads, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for. In other words, things that are not present are real to us. They motivate us. They encourage us. They form our perspective on the world, the way we see it and understand it. And even the depth of our commitments, what we devote ourselves to, they aren't present, but we have such an assurance, such a certainty about those things that have been promised, that have been told to us, that are true for us, those things that are not present are real to us nonetheless. And the second thing he says is the conviction of things not seen. We live in a world that's all about what is seen, and yet we are to live our lives coordinating our lives, navigating our lives by what we don't see, what isn't visible to the naked eye, what isn't before us, things that we can't point to or produce or test empirically by the senses or by tools of science. In other words, when we demonstrate our commitment and the worth of the gospel by living our lives by faith, we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, which is what Paul challenged us to do in verse 12 and the words just before those that we read this morning. And why do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Because of faith. We're told God himself is at work in us. Or we could put it another way. Because we have the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. When we're told that God is at work within us, that's something people around us can't see. The only way that we can bear witness to that is to live in the faith of it, in trusting it, in believing it. And that shapes then the way we choose our words, make our decisions, 
lead our lives. Like these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. In a way, I think it helps to remember that Timothy is Paul's guy and Epaphroditus is the Philippians guy. In other words, he went to be with Paul. The Philippians sent him. He was their emissary. He was their apostle, their messenger. We're sending you our guy to serve you in ways that we can't all be there to do for you. You're on our minds, Paul. We care about you. We're sending a gift with him to help you. And he's going to work with you, wait upon you, run errands for you. Whatever you need, he's going to be a companion. As Paul himself said, he's going to be a partner in the ministry, a co-worker, a fellow soldier, a brother. Paul hopes to send Timothy to the Philippians. And Paul wants them to know in this letter because he's already there when they read it. Because he has sent this letter with Epaphroditus. He is sending Epaphroditus home because he's been very, very ill. And he most likely could have turned around, but he went ahead and boarded that ship. And that's how the news with a co-worker went back to Philippi and let them know of his condition and why they were deeply concerned about his health and condition. But he risked, as we're told here by Paul, a great illness that brought him very much to the shores, not only of Rome, but to death. And Paul himself was greatly worried about his condition. And so now, as he reveals his plans, he wants them to know, yes, I've sent Epaphroditus with this letter because we didn't want you to worry too much. And I am just, he says, I thank God for his mercy on Epaphroditus because it was mercy on me too. These are real brothers in Christ sharing in the work of the gospel. But Paul has one main thing to say about each of them. One main thing about Timothy, one main thing about Epaphroditus. One is, he says, selfless. He says, Timothy is selfless. And he says, one is sacrificial. Yeah, he says, Epaphroditus is sacrificial. In other words, these two guys are alike. They're Christ-like. They're very much like Christ. In fact, they both have the mind of Christ. As he admonished the Philippians in this letter back in chapter 2, verse 5. But in verse 20 and 21 of Timothy, he says, Timothy shares my concerns and genuinely cares for your welfare. Unlike others, unlike others, he seeks the interests of Christ and not his own interests. And then in verse 30 of Epaphroditus, he says, he risked his life for the work of Christ. Unlike others, busy with their own interests, 
he sought the interests of the Lord. So Timothy and Epaphroditus think the gospel is worth it. They are living examples. They're examples that are really close to home. I mean, one's from the Philippians, one's from long-time work in association with Paul. They both meet in the middle, so to speak. They meet in Christ, and they both serve to show how central Christ is to them. They are both aware of Jesus, not just when he photobombs a selfie or happens to be lying in the trail, they're aware of Jesus in all of the back busyness and activities of life. And they see needs, and those needs compel them. They don't kind of divert them, but they draw them because they have the heart of Christ. And so we see in these two, Timothy and Epaphroditus, we see things hoped for and the certainty of things not seen. We see that their lives are not lived for their own interests, but for the interests of Jesus Christ. They're not distracted, they're driven. And they're driven by the desires that they have to be like Jesus Christ. Notice Timothy. Timothy is the focus of verses 19 through 24. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but in verse 7 of this chapter, chapter 2, in verse 7, Paul said Jesus took the form of a slave. And in verse 22, when he's speaking about Timothy, he says, Timothy worked like a, a slave with me in the service of the gospel. Like I said, maybe it's a coincidence, but I think it's because Paul sees Jesus at work in the life of Timothy. He sees Jesus in the people who live as citizens worthy of the gospel. By the way, in verse 20, it's emphasized, Timothy is genuinely concerned about your welfare. Concern, the word concern, is a word that Paul uses again in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 6. It's very familiar to us. He says, don't be anxious, don't worry. It's the very same word. So is he saying Timothy is worried, is concerned? Well, there's a difference between the way we should translate these, this same word in the, the contextual or the, the setting in which they're being used. Because the same word in Greek pivots between concern and worry on whether we are basing our lives on God or basing our lives on ourselves. We tend to worry when we're basing our lives on ourselves. That everything's at stake for us and it just preoccupies us. It absorbs us. It, com it commands us. 
and we worry. It's not just concern. But what he says here about Timothy has to do with others. He is deeply concerned about the Philippians. He wants the best for them. And so Paul's sending him to their side. Notice Epaphroditus, who's the focus of verses 25 through 30. And maybe it's just coincidence, but in this chapter, in verse 8, Paul speaks of Jesus humbling himself, becoming obedient unto death. The very words unto death are here used of Epaphroditus in verse 30, risking his life and coming near unto death for the work of Christ. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but I think it's because Paul sees Jesus at work in the life of Epaphroditus. In fact, he risked his own life because of the work of Christ. He sees Jesus in the people who live as citizens worthy of the gospel. My birthday was just a couple of weeks back, and uh, every year, without fail, I receive some notification, sometimes it's an email, sometimes it's a card, sometimes it's a, a modest gift, but I can't tell you how precious it is to hear from David Messenger Sr. David Messenger Sr. and I met in class. Uh, I was teaching the class and David took the class. I think we were in the same class uh, more than once, but we've become friends. We have similarities in our past. I think Dave's was a little more wild than mine, but Dave was a biker, former drug peddler. He came to Christ. Christ turned his life upside down. He's a different man. And throughout these years, he has lived, he's been a light for Christ. Even as Paul said, shining like a light in the firmament. I got a letter from him, and he's always good about sharing what's going on in his life, things that he's been up to. Uh, Dave's just a little bit older than me. He doesn't own a car. He lives up in Modesto. He lives in a trailer park where he's lived now for years. And he is like Jesus in that trailer park. He shares everything he has, gives away whatever he's asked. If people ask him for socks, he gives them his socks, his extra pair of socks. He just lives to serve Christ. I see him. A lot of people don't even know Dave exists. People who live for Christ don't live to be seen. They live to serve. They live to make a difference in this world. They, li they li live to bring Christ into places where Christ isn't known, isn't seen, where there is need that isn't being met. David is Jesus where he lives. And they all know it. 
and he's making an impact with every ounce of his life. As citizens, live worthy of the gospel. So this morning, I don't know why it came to me, but I realized that uh, 25 years ago, I was awarded my PhD, which was a very arduous, demanding task, perhaps one of the biggest of my life. And when I started out, I wanted to quit many times. And there were many times along the way I didn't think that I would be able to finish. So when I walked the aisle, so to speak, and crossed that platform and received the degree, it meant a great deal to me. It's been 25 years. That's hard for me to believe. And uh, I was thinking today, what were my dreams? What did the future, what did I want the future to look like 25 years ago me? What are your dreams? What will you do with the rest of your life? What will you do with your future or the next 25 years? Some of you have one-third of your life left. Some of you have one-half of your life left. And some of you have two-thirds of your life left. F.M. Alexander said, people do not decide their futures. They decide their habits. And their habits decide their futures. Jesus needs to be a habit, not an interruption. James Clear, author of Atomic Habits, wrote, the more control you have over your attention the more control you have over your future. Who or what controls your attention? On what subject of change, James Clear wrote, on, what, on the subject of change, he wrote, start with who you wish to become, shift to how that person would act and shrink to what you can control. Let's uh, change that just a bit, because when I read that, I immediately thought of inserting Jesus. Start with who you wish to become. Well, may I suggest God's plan for you, Jesus. Shift to how that person would act, Christ-like selflessness and sacrifice and then shrink to what you can control. And Paul gives us the answer and the meaning of that when in this letter, chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Start with who you wish to become, shift to how that person would act and shrink to what you can control or what he can control and live by faith in the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. May God bless you this week. Be aware, have your eyes open to the things that God wants to do in you and through you, where you are at. Make a difference in the world in which you are living and watch God work through you and do great things through you for his name. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the work of your spirit in our lives. We praise you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. We love you.